Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Resting Place Carrollwood. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at a gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org. How many ready for the main point? Main point. The main point today is we are God's house of prayer. Say when they say we, say it louder. Say we are God's house of prayer. This is actually part of a overall title that this is our first Sunday that we're sharing the sermon across the entire Resting Place family. Right now in the Wesley, Resting Place Tampa and in Resting Place uh, Wesley Chapel, we're all preaching a similar word. We all have one Bible verse to share. <laughs> And then we're allowed to have all of our animated creativity amongst the campuses. So today you get my version of this. You excited about that? Yeah? Awesome. But this is part of our series on, on We Are the Resting Place. And one of the questions that we're looking to answer is what does it mean to be a people that God can rest upon? What does it mean to be a people that God can rest upon? Today's key passage is actually two verses. The first one, we're going to pull it up. I actually brought verses to you today. Hallelujah. Go ahead, Mike, pull it up. So uh, it says here in the, uh, I'm going to read it in the ESV, but I think this is NIV. It says, uh, and the foreigners who will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. And everyone who keeps the Shabbat and does not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. Next. I will bring these people to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Every time I read this passage in Isaiah, I immediately think about Jesus in John chapter 2 did you know, we're talking about parenting with the Holy Spirit, right? And Jesus, you know, he, the Bible says that he is called wonderful God, ever, or, uh, wonderful counselor, everlasting God, or everlasting father, right? Everlasting father, anybody? Yeah. So we know that Jesus, right, representing the Godhead, God our father, yeah? He made a whip to drive people out of the temple. That's some serious parenting, y'all, where no, he didn't grab the chancleta or the belt. He made his own whip, okay? Any parents been so angry that your anger lasted the entire length of you making a whip to take out your kids? Anybody? Not, not me. I mean, Jesus was mad in John chapter 2 where he took the time to, and he was a carpenter, so it was a, probably a good whip, too. It was probably quality. He probably sold it in the market the next day. <laughs> Wow, I'm taking a lot of biblical freedom here. But the Bible says in John chapter 2 that Jesus saw that they had been making profit on people. Uh, uh, the temple had raised and spiked the cost of doves to sacrifice in the temple by 2,000% markup. So here he is, he's in the temple, and he's seeing that these poor people are just trying to come and honor God, and the owners of the temple had turned the temple into a den of thieves. The money changers had hiked up 
this notion to sacrifice doves by thousands and thousands of percent on markup. Jesus was sick of it. So what did he do? He makes the whip and drives them out. The Bible says he tossed the tables and drove them out of the temple. And it says, and it was in that moment the disciples remembered the passage that says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And this is the words of Yahweh incarnate, Jesus himself. He says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. He was mad enough to make a whip. I just can't get over that. So he's very serious about his house being a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. He's very serious about his house being a house of prayer and not a platform for greed. He's very serious about his house being a house of prayer and not a breeding ground for idolatry. Today what we're going to do is I'm, I just took the time to take these two, these two verses the ones Isaiah 56, verse 6 and verse 7. I'm just going to break them down little by little. Um, so we're just going to let the word of God speak for itself this morning. You okay with that? Good. The first part of that passage in Isaiah 56, verse 6, it says, And the foreigners who will join themselves to the Lord. And the foreigners will join themselves to the Lord. This was actually not just a... A, a, a metaphoric concept. But for those of you who do not have Jewish heritage and or Jewish lineage, you and I are adopted into the kingdom of Israel. Know this, that the kingdom of Israel is still very much the kingdom of Israel. Okay? And one day, Yeshua, Jesus, will reign out of Jerusalem, the actual like Jerusalem, take a plane and go across the Atlantic Sea and go to Jerusalem. There is where God promised David that on this land, in this nation, I will put a throne and the throne will last forever. And now we know that G David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus steps up on the scene and says, I am the one that will sit on the throne of David. And I will establish the kingdom of Israel for all time. You and I, as believers in Jesus, we actually get to be part of a permanent kingdom. We weren't, uh, remember this was, the Bible says the salvation was for the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? Before us Gentile believers ever had a chance to believe in God, this was actually a relationship and a covenant between Abraham's people and Yahweh. And then we got a chance to enter that covenant as foreigners. You and I were foreigners to this covenant. And then we got a chance to be welcomed into the kingdom. We have Jewish believers here. That they actually, she's of the lineage, right? But me and Stephanie, we now hold no difference in our inheritance because I'm an adopted son. Just like we're all now sons and daughters of the one true king. But at one point, at one point or another, we were foreigners. And this isn't, now I'm talking metaphorically. In fact, if you read in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, remember that at the time you were separate. Everyone say separate. Say it louder. Say separate. 
At the time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse uh, Ephesians 2.19, it says, Consequently, now you're no longer foreigners. You're no longer foreigners. And you're no longer strangers. But now you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. I think what I want to do in this passage that we're breaking down of Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, the first thing I want to note is that passages like these help us not forget that at one point our very souls were foreigners with no home country. At one point or another, you were lost. You have to remember when you read passages like these, you can stop and pause and raise your hand and thank Jesus that at one point you were lost and now you're found. This, it's moments like these that you can pause and think, man, where would I have been if Jesus hadn't saved me? That's a real thought, y'all. We choose right now not to forget where we came from. We choose right now not to forget the pit of despair that Jesus pulled us out of. We won't forget that at one point our hearts had nowhere to call home. You know that's why kids join gangs, don't you? Because they're looking for a place to call home. You know this is why people end up in bad crowds, right? They end up in the wrong crowd because they're looking for a community to call home. And the Bible says, congratulations, every single one of you now have a place to call home in the embrace of Jesus. And not just in the embrace of Jesus, but now in the embrace of the community of God. It's all good. Holy Spirit's just touching him. That's all good. It's all good. <laughs> we celebrate the fact that now we have a permanent home in Jesus, in his everlasting kingdom. We Gentile believers now have a seat at the table of God's permanent dominion on the earth. Let me tell you something. Have you ever felt like you don't belong anywhere? Have you ever felt like no matter where you go, you just don't fit? The Bible says that there is a seat at God's table with your name on it. That now you have a permanent place to call home in the love of God. You're no longer just a foreigner with no place to call home. It says in Isaiah 56 verse uh, 6, it says, And those foreigners um, who will themselves be joined to him, they will minister to him. Do you have that up? Can you pull up verse 6, please? It says, and those foreigners who would join to Yahweh will serve him. Or another word is to minister to him. I'm going to tell you right now, your primary purpose in life is to minister to God. What does it mean to minister to someone? That's a big Christian word, isn't it? Minister, you know. Every time, somebody, every time I hear the word minister, I just think of a dude in robes, you know. Big shiny robes, kind of a stern look on his face. 
I want you to think of the word minister not just as a, a person, but as an action, as a verb, as something that we do. And when we minister to someone, just think about this, whatever I'm doing to this person to cause them joy. When I'm ministering to you, I'm doing whatever I can to cause you joy. Does that make sense? Does this help make understand the word minister a little bit easier? Okay. So when we minister to God, we are trying to position our lives to cause him joy. In fact, you know that's why he created us. The whole gamble of making the human race was to potentially expand the potential for joy in creation. Did you know that? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 8 that I, wisdom, which we now know in 1 Corinthians, wisdom, Jesus Christ is wisdom of God. So, you know, fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter, we find out that wisdom of God is actually Jesus. So rewind back to Proverbs 8. We now know that wisdom was the master craftsman at the father's side in Proverbs 30. It actually talks about that wisdom was dancing and twirling as the father was making creation. And it says, my delight, delight was in the sons of men. So like the whole purpose of creating humans, risking the fall, risking everything that we have considered to be terrible in this world, the whole reason, the whole gamble was to create people with free will that God can share his joy with you and you could share your joy with him. That was the whole objective of the creation of humanity, to expand the relational joy that existed in the Trinity. It's like, if we're going to make, we're gonna, if we're going to expand this relational joy that we feel, we're going to have to make creatures like us. We're going to have to make creatures that have a free will with the ability to choose on their own, with the ability to actually love. And so our primary purpose in this life is to minister to him. One of the simplest and easiest ways to minister to God. One of the most effective and quick, just right out the gate ways to minister to God is to simply turn your attention to him. Did you know that something as simple as turning your gaze to Jesus brings joy to his heart? Did you know that? He's really not that hard to please. <laughs> I'll prove it to you, because the Bible says in the book of Song of Solomon, chapter four, or chapter six, verses four and five, you, this, is, this is the young man, the lover, who's in this story between Song of Solomon, he represents Christ Jesus. Okay, everybody got that? The person who represents Jesus? Raise your hand if you got it, yes? This is what he says to his lover in the book of Song of Solomon. You are beautiful, my darling, like a lovely city of Tizra. Yes, you are as beautiful as Jerusalem, as majestic as an army of billowing banners. This is what he says in verse 5. You ready? Turn your eyes away, for they overpower me. This is, this is the lover, the man, the bridegroom, speaking to the beloved. In this story, he represents Jesus, and he's saying, every time you lock your eyes with me, I'm overpowered to the point I need you to look away. He loves us so much, and we're so beautiful to him that the moment we lock our gaze with him, he is overwhelmed with emotion. I hate to break the bad news to you, but I have a feeling that some of you don't picture that when you start to pray to Jesus. 
Some of you, unfortunately, have a confused view of God in your head. Some of you, unfortunately, have painted maybe maybe a, 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 a incorrect. Um, thing that your father did or some, some, some of you are painting the wrong kind of face on God that as soon as you come to him, oh, here he is again. Some of you think that when you go to look at God that he's, he's instantly disappointed with you. But that's, nothing could be further from the truth. The moment you lock your gaze with him, he's overwhelmed with gratitude that you chose him. Our eyes overpower him because he knows what we sometimes have to fight through just to finally lock our gaze with his. Based on an article from healthybrains.org, the average person processes 70,000 thoughts a day. 70,000. Um, another article uh, from, according to some marketing experts, it says the average person sees four to 10,000 advertisements per day. The average smartphone dings anywhere between 46 to 106 times per day. God is aware that there are, in a world where thousands of things per day are desperately trying to steal our attention, one of the simplest things we can do to minister to Jesus is to simply turn our attention to him in prayer. Because he knows that we got to fight through thousands of things that are desperately trying to grab our attention. Thousands of things. Thousands of distracting thoughts. Thousands of dings and advertisements. He knows that everything is trying to compete for our attention. And the moment we decide to block it all out and look to him, he's overwhelmed. So I don't want you to feel bad if you're not spending 20 hours a day in prayer. What I want you to do is to appreciate the fact that every time you decide to turn to him, he's overwhelmed with gratitude that you chose him in that moment. That's how he is. We owe him everything, and yet he is the least entitled person we've ever met. Oh, you didn't catch that. No, no. We owe him everything, and yet he is the least entitled person we've ever met. He takes nothing for granted from us. He's so grateful for us. <sighs> However, we must come to terms with the fact that we've allowed the garden of our minds to be filled with everything except God. We must come to terms with the fact that we've allowed everything else to fill our minds. Entertainment, movies, stressful situations, problems, bills. We must come to terms with the fact that we aren't allowing enough God-focused thoughts in the garden of my mind. The way we solve this is focusing our life to minister to him in prayer. A distracted mind, the way you fix it is with dedicated prayer. Sometimes prayer just looks like five-minute encounters. Shoot, I'll be at my desk. How many of you guys know I work from home? Anybody been to my house yet? Raise your hand if you've been to my house. Anybody, anybody been to my nerdy office? <laughs> well, all my collectibles and I've got a Captain America shield. Just, it's like a room built for distractions. Like, 
I like distractions, so I just like every time I like look up from my laptop, I just got all kinds of things. Bob Ross is on one end. I got Power Rangers on. I just whatever. You just got to come and see it sometime. <laughs> but sometimes in my office, I'll just in between calls, I'll just pause and just thank God for what He's doing today. Like God, I don't I don't even know what you're up to today, but thank you. I know you're up to something good. Sometimes I'm in between my calls and I just take some time to just pray to him. And what that does is that centers me really quickly. I get these little five-minute encounters with God, these little five-minute vacations with God, and I'm instantly centered again. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or sometimes it could look like all the way where I'm down on the Courtney Campbell on my bike and I am ugly crying on my bike having full-blown encounters with God, freaking everyone out on the trail, by the way, because I am not a quiet prayer person. I don't know why, it, like, when we were growing up, we called prayer times quiet times. Anybody ever called it quiet times growing up? It was never quiet for me, okay? I would blast Marco Barrientos and Marco Sweet in my room, and sometimes my poor mom, she would just hear, like, full-blown worship concerts in my room for hours. I would jump up and down. My mom grab a broomstick. Oh, yeah, boy, I want. <laughs> Man, but the goal is to connect with him. You know? The goal is to lock our gaze with him. The goal is to look a lot like the woman of Luke chapter 7. It's not up here, but I'll just read it to you. Luke chapter 7 in the, new, in the Passion Translation, it says, in the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard that Jesus was at Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made of alabaster and filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right to the home of the Jewish religious leader, and in front of all the guests, she knelt at the feet of Jesus, broken and weeping, she, she covered his feet with, she covered his feet with her tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then, as an act of worship, she opened the flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume. When we're ministering to God, nothing brings him more joy than when we just open up our hearts to him and give him everything that's inside. Some of us are so scared. Are you coming out to play? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I was literally thinking, I was like, man, I wish someone would come up and play. <laughs> you just gotta listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? <laughs> just okay sorry oh man I love it when he's in charge the most important thing that we could do when we're ministering to God is just pour out everything that's inside here's the thing some of you are convinced that some things inside are so ugly that no one would ever want to see them but what you consider to be ugly he considers precious what you consider to be vile, 
he considers to be rare and expensive. So expensive that he was even to give, willing to give his own life for it. People have been searching for purpose since the beginning of time. All the while, our entire purpose could have been easily found in bringing joy to the heart of God. Did you catch that? How many books have they written on purpose? How many, how many, how many like gurus have we have talked about purpose and great thinkers and philosophers? Purpose, purpose, purpose. Listen, our purpose is easily found in simply bringing joy to the heart of God. There's no person more worthy to serve. There's no person more worthy of our kindness because he was the first one, just like this immoral woman, he was the first one to treat us like we're not an object to be used for selfish gain. Did you catch that? Jesus was the first one to treat us like we weren't an object to be used for selfish gain. He wants us around him just because he wants us to be around. Father, I desire that they would be with me where I am. And the last couple of things I'm going to say here, it says also in that same passage in Isaiah 56, it says, those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Everybody say joyful. joyful. Say it with a little bit of joy. Say joyful. joyful. Did you know that the Christian experience is supposed to be a joyful one? Are you aware of this? Oh my gosh. If there's something that we're gonna work on at this church is we're gonna deprogram people from religiosity. We're just gonna deprogram people from religious bondage. Our God is a joyful God. He's happy, he's in a good mood. <sighs> Going to God's holy mountain doesn't just sound cool. It's also a promise to build in us a character that would be sustainable for the mountain of the Lord. Catch this now. As the Bible says in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 5, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. So not only is he promising to take us up into the mountain, but that promise also includes character adjustment. He's going to turn us into a people whose hearts and hands are pure. Who we don't tell lies. Who we keep our, in another translation it says, for those who keep their word even when it hurts. Now it's in the place... In God's place, he promises to make us joyful. On the mountain, he promises to make us joyful. That word joy is shamak. Everyone say shamak. Say it louder, say shamak. Shamak, the word here means to cause, to be glad, to be cheerful, to be merry, to rejoice. 45 times in the Bible it says to be exceedingly glad. The dwelling place of God is a joyful one. The dwelling place of God is full of gladness and cheer. 
Our circumstances may not always be joyful. Hear me when I say this. Our circumstances may not always be joyful. In fact, Jesus promised us that in this world, we will have trials and tribulations. Oh, I believe in the promises of God. How about the one where he promises trials? <laughs> I'm standing on the promises of God. What about the ones where he promised tribulation? But here's the catch. Here's the kicker. Yes, Jesus' promise of tribulation is true, but no matter what, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Yeah. I feel like I, feel like I just said that on deaf ears. Your life and circumstances may have trials and tribulations, but in his presence, there is fullness of joy. I can have joy in the most difficult of circumstances. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. So as I'm joyful, so I am strong. The last part of that passage, and in this place, in this mountain, in this family, the Bible says, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? We are the family of God, and this is what it means to be a people God can rest upon, to be a people of prayer. Thank you for listening to this podcast from The Resting Place Carrollwood. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at a gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org.